Okay, Robin, we haven't done one of these for a while, but people seem to like them. But the rule is you can't be too grumpy. Or if you're grumpy, you've got to offset it with a uh, something happy. Are you, are you okay for that? I am. I would admit to being grumpier this year than in, in earlier years. But I'm, you know, I'm, I have a bit of the festive about me. So you've got me at my best. Good. Well, I've actually got a little thing here. If I think you're going off topic or you're getting too depressing, I'm going to call you out. And uh, we've heard variously in the past about different animals that may or may not have survived under the Merton's uh, gaze or worth. Any wildlife just now in, in your vicinity? When I was shooting rats last time we spoke, I've taken to trapping. So I've actually got a squirrel trap because I've got a rather attractive plum tree in the middle of the garden. And then I, the exact moment I have a plums to harvest, the squirrels come out of the woods and eat them all. So I've been trapping them this year. And then... Um, well, it depends on my mood, but most of them get re-released. Presumably they're grey squirrels, not red squirrels. I back out into Highgate Woods, thousands of grey squirrels there. And they are officially, according to the law of pest, you're not actually allowed to release squirrels. If you catch them, you actually have to, um, yeah, that's the end of the grey squirrel if you catch them. But can we blame our American friends on, on grey squirrels? You know we've got 25% of our listeners are Americans, so we should be slightly careful. But yeah, I was thinking about that. I mean... Because, of course, you all love the red squirrels. I'm not quite sure. What, I bet red squirrels eat your plums if they were there as well. They just, they just look a bit prettier doing it. But uh, we've got squirrels in from the US. We've got American crayfish taking over. Apparently, American bluebells are pushing out the British bluebells. I'm not quite sure. Is anywhere that the, the, the British uh, fauna is taking over the US? You're kind of into that kind of thing. Or birds, anything happening over in the US we should, we should fight back with? We gave them our language. We gave them, well, no, but be careful. We gave each other quite a lot of music, I think. I think we've collectively influenced the world with in modern music. Do we think they got the better of that exchange? I, I don't know. Now, we, now we're in dangerous territory. It's a symbiotic relationship. Anyway, better talk about some insurance. Well, hello, welcome all, welcome back. Uh, a little bit of a difference this week. Back with well, what you're telling us are the popular, well, should be popular partners podcast. Uh, we're going to keep it pretty brief as we're coming up to the end of the year. And delighted you could join us, whether you're listening to this on the day before Christmas or catching up later. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get back to Robin and I. So. Uh, I've got a sneaky idea of what's been capturing your attention because you you won't stop talking about it. Smart follow, just for those that don't know what smart follow is, perhaps you might want to explain it and then a little bit of a backstory about what else is going on around smart follow. Smart follow is unique to the syndicated market. And what it means is that where the broker has obtained the terms and a price from a lead underwriter... There are those building algorithms which say, if I know the leader of that risk and I've looked at the history of where I made my money the last 10 years, I could safely assume, for instance, that if Liberty, Lead, Offshore Energy, Mexico, and you, you profile that risk, your algorithm will automatically take a share of that risk at the Liberty price. So it's basically starting the process of automating syndication after the price has been fixed. Yeah, smart follow is a concept 
it's as old as Lloyd's itself because you said it's that like whole syndicated. You know, you've got a leader who sets the price. If you're a smart but maybe smaller syndicate, you figure out who actually writes profitable business and you and you follow. So the, I, I guess a smart follow here is uh, that the algorithm should be at least as good as maybe better than the kind of human in the loop. Isn't that right? So that's kind of where your algorithms start to come in. This was all started by Key Syndicate, which we've talked about a lot now, three years ago. And they built, after exhaustively researching their past portfolio with a little bit of help from Google, and, and they built an algorithm which said, if it has these characteristics, then we'll also write it. And the market sort of sat back and watched with interest to see what went on. But, but I think it's fair to say they've proven the model. Um, they're going to write, give or take, a billion dollars of capacity this year. And they've announced their deal with Aspen and, and Travelers, who are going to follow a similar model. And it's that which has made everybody else go, well, if this is here to stay, then what are we going to do about it? And then, of course, Artificial and Apollo have entered the market with another solution. So everybody's sort of now going to go, okay, if this is a thing, what's my position? Who am I going to work with? What are my brokers going to say? I think that's why it's most talked about, because it really needs a lot of collaboration with a lot of people to make it work. I would say it's a number of things coming together. So it's a, a, a sort of a startup because they spun out of Brit. We'll give them, you know, they, they raised a decent amount of money, I think over half, about half a billion along the way in capacity and now more, as you said. And it is at the time when we're going to talk a bit more about this. You, we, insurance anywhere in the world really is now and should be able to do more with automation and bring all these pieces together. And I, I, I would shout out and celebrate the success of which we are part of for episode 277 recently when we had, uh, we, we, you actually managed to track down Mark Allen, spoke to him, the CEO. We had James Birch and Nigel Walsh and Bijal Patel from Aurora in the room talking about it and actually had a really good sort of first-hand understanding of what that is. I mean, it creates an environment where you have to be a good broker. I mean, if, if the stuff that automatically places itself because it's good places itself, then it follows as night follows day that the hard work is in finding stuff that doesn't get naturally automated by algorithms. And that's going to sort out the difference between good brokers and bad brokers. That's where they earn their money. I think there's an overarching theme here, which is an increasing understanding of what can be automated and what can't be automated. But the key syndicate is effectively a bunch of smart people working out the natural limits of algorithms in the specialty market at this point in time and saying that is something we can do algorithmically. And I think we're starting to learn more and more from the general insurance or the retail market, depending on what you want to call it, there's been a lot more automation there. There's been a tendency to say, oh, we couldn't possibly automate our specialty market. It's far too complicated and every risk is unique. But I think there's a lot to be learned. And I don't think it's automation. I think it's semi-automation. Bit by bit, you can see automation starting to, in various forms, starting to be adopted in the specialty insurance market. And I would have thought next three to five years, that's a really big trend and that's an area of insure tech or startup focus. Yeah, and I mentioned Aurora in passing from that, that last podcast. You know Jan and Bijal pretty well. Do you just want to talk a bit more about what they're doing at Aurora and how that all fits into this space? Well, they're the first I've seen take auto underwriting, algorithmic underwriting, which is now completely ubiquitous in household and motor, into 
the SME space and actually into the mid-market space. So they are underwriting algorithmically with capacity from the great and good, Munich AIG, Liberty. They've got some of the best names in the business to support them. And they're rolling that out class by class. And I think that the world has been promised a good SME solution for the last 10 years. We've all been talking about how SME will be the next bastion after retail, but it's taken a long time. And also just to prove that you yourself are a true innovator, you've been uh, beating the drum of claims and the term TPAs, which certainly I didn't come across TPA until about two years ago, but third-party administrator, companies that essentially help or lead the settlement of claims and all the exchange of information for insurance companies. But we've been quite interested in what's happening in that area. Just tell us a bit more about why it is you've now got enthusiastic about claims. Again, it's, I think it's natural. I think there are companies like Vave, Key, who've invested heavily in the front end of their business. They can do algorithmic underwriting, but they can't do any algorithmic anything on claims. So they're 100% dependent on third-party outsourcers, so third-party claims administrators, to um, for their claims service. So in the event there's a claim, they hand it over to somebody else. And that feels underinvested, and there's a groundswell of opinion which says that the service that's being provided by some is no longer good enough. So in that context, Reserve, who we had on stage uh, some time ago, CJ, he's raised $20 million from Bain Capital and others in the States to build a digital TPA, a TPA of the future, a third-party administrator of the future. This is back to this, what can you automate, what can you not automate? I think he's seen a lot of automation in retail that he thinks is reappliable to specialty. I think he's seen the power of or the potential of generative AI. I think he's going to glue all these things together and create a fundamentally different modern TPA. They're coming to the UK at some point in 2024. That's really one to watch. Well, he's doing it already. I saw a presentation that he gave well, a couple of months ago now in Convex, because Convex Insurer is also one of their investors. And actually, that was it's really interesting to actually understand how these things come together. So CJ was there, but also with him on stage was Oleg Ilichev. So Oleg was previous at Argo and then set up Altai Ventures. And he's basically doing something called venture building. So, so Oleg, who's been an investor, been in insurance, had this idea that you could make claims more efficient. Wouldn't be the first person to think about it. The difference was he actually went and got some money together and put an idea together and did venture building, which is basically where you, an individual, think of the idea, but they didn't necessarily want to run the company. But he then basically found CJ, brought the business in. And, and what was really interesting when CJ was talking about this was how they already are using generative AI to improve the whole way that you know, TPA or insurance companies talk to their clients. So, so essentially using generative AI to do the things that insurers still feel relatively comfortable doing, which is reviewing what's in contracts, reviewing lots of documentation, and essentially just being much faster in how they respond to the the client. So it's very interesting seeing someone like CJ, who's already built one company, backed by Olag, who understands the business, backed by a number of investors who also understand the business, how fast these things can actually move. And then I think your point, it's sort of moving into a space that desperately needs to be to be improved. So great supporters of those. Good to see you know, some of the people they got in London. And I guess you know, so that CJ doesn't have to get on a plane next time and come over from Boston to be in our event. We're also taking ourselves over back over to New York twice this year so we, we can go to the uh, those interesting companies without them all having to come to the UK. 
Yes, thank you, thanks to Google. I mean, I, I um, that was a great success we had in June last year with in collaboration with Google. We got a lot of people ask us, can you do what you do in London, in New York? And now you'll have the details and dates at your fingertips. But we've got two events coming up, haven't we, in March and June. Well, I hope you've got the date in your diary, March the 14th. Yeah, thanks to Saitora and HX uh, and some others for supporting that. And it's really building on what we did in London, not just getting everyone together in an evening, but that whole concept, a little bit back to your what can be automated, which is, and also I'd say it's a little bit of the shakeout of, in, of InsureTech, which is certainly a specialty, which is underwriters going, I, I just want my life to be easier, not easier because they're lazy, but they just don't want to spend one third of their day reviewing submissions that they're not, they're not going to write the business for another third of the day doing manual entry. And so the, I mean, this is probably not the right term, but hey, we're just amongst friends. The InsureTech cockroaches, you know, the companies that have survived through some of the downturn of those building solutions that actually help the data move from A to B and all the way through the, the, the process. And so, you know, we're seeing quite a lot happening. And actually that does also open up the other theme we're seeing, which is around people providing platforms, which you know, we've been talking about for a while. You've been a big enthusiast for, but we're really starting to see some things in the news now where companies are clearly putting their money where their uh, where their PR was before, or other people's PR was in terms of some collaboration and acquisitions of organizations to to uh, reinforce that whole platform approach. The key issue for me in all of this is, a, is this gradual recognition of the levels of interdependency that there are in insurance. In other words, nobody really operates in isolation. Back to the point about TPAs, there are lots of different data sources, lots of different partners, lots of different providers, that are lots of different technology that you need. If you could see some incumbent players, Guidewire is a good example. You know, they're building their ecosystem. It has a huge collection of relevant propositions that they add in look it's just huge and it's never ever going to go away it's, it's a technical reflection of the reality of the digital world we live in yeah i feel we need in the office we need to have a big white wall with dots and lines and, and start to sort of join up all the dots and connect in fact in fact i think there's an idea for a product there which is if you want to we're, we're doing ourselves a little bit throughout this but if you want to know who's working with who you start to see you know, who's connected or to your point earlier on about the interdependency. And when it comes down to even like, does the API actually work? How are all these bits fitting together? But but you mentioned Guidewire there. It's interesting to see Guidewire is now collaborating with Swiss Re. And, and that's, I don't want to say not the, the reinsurance part of Swiss Re because clearly they'll be benefiting from that. But it's essentially the part of Swiss Re that is now making their data analytics available to their clients and third parties, they've recognized that if you collaborate with a, an organization that you know, works with a significant percentage of the world's insurers, it's much, I was hesitate to use the word easy, but easier to distribute and sell your data analytics than it is if you try and go alone. And then, of course, we saw that Swiss Re acquired Fathom, the flood modelers, which is you sort of join the dot in a different direction, which is you know, these big organizations looking at acquiring and building out their own data both for their own purposes and, and actually to license on and sell to others and you know, it can goes on you can sort of you can keep drawing the dots and joining out the lines and i'm sure that's what we're going to be doing a lot more of next year yeah i think people talked a lot at the start of 23 about how there would be lots of MA and and there would be a a fallout i think there has been a fallout there's been less MA than i thought there would be and it's only towards the back end of the year that we started to see it 
I think, I don't know this is a similar theme, but it's an observation I'd like to make about 23. I think it revealed the innate vulnerability of the MGA model in a world full of capacity, soft market, capacity relatively easy to get historically. The MGA model was a no-brainer. You could get going, learn a lot, learn on somebody else's balance sheet, get better at it, raise more money, think about building your own balance sheet. There's a lot of companies on that model who didn't get capacity renewed at this year. You know, it did reveal how quickly the MGA valuations fall away if you if you haven't got any capacity to work with. Some have converted into brokers, some have sold themselves in the, in the M&A we were talking about. I mean, it's a classic example of um, Warren Buffett's expression that only when the tide goes out do you realise he's been swimming naked. Because, you know, I think everybody, every, advisors and everybody else pushed everybody towards the MGA model. It, it, most of the time it works, but not when capacity is hard to get, it doesn't. Yeah, or well, I mean, the reverse of that rising tide, sorry, falling tide is like a rising tide that lifts or both. I mean, I suppose it's not necessarily the MGA model itself that's wrong. It's, it's the fact that there's been a little bit over enthusiasm, shall we say, for investing in MGAs without looking at it really carefully. And you remember, I even got a slide on this of so the sort of early days of InsureTech. People were talking about how there'd be a sort of removal of the, the middle of the insurance value chain and the the distribution would kind of eat the middle and it would meet up with the capital. It will happen. We could talk about what's happening in the corporate world because I think we're going to see it there quicker. But I mean, the reality, as you said, is like for MGAs, you've got to get your distribution right. You've got to be able to go and sell the product. So a lot struggled from that because it's expensive and you've got to display. If you're not doing something that's brand new and people want, you've got to go and displace existing insurance companies often or brokers. And then to your point, if you've got one capacity provider and that capacity provider decides it no longer likes cyber or whatever else you're doing, it's very dangerous. So I guess one bit of advice for anybody that's out there that's thinking of building an MGA or got an MGA is make sure you've got more than one capacity provider because you're very vulnerable otherwise. Look, I go a little bit further than that. I think that if you look at innovation, I'm not sure I use the word short tech anymore, over the last 10 years, only embedded, which is remains hot and is genuinely disruptive of the distribution chain. That's the only discernible way in which the distribution mechanisms of insurance have changed at all. Brokers or agents are basically doing all the same things that they did before. They may be doing them slightly more efficiently. But there's not a broker in the London market who's felt in any way disrupted or vulnerable to uh, innovation. On the contrary, I think they're probably taking more out of the value chain than they were before, and this is a limit to what you can innovate if you can't change the way the distribution mechanism works. And you know, if you extrapolate that back 10 years, so much of what's failed is because we haven't done, there hasn't been any serious disruption of the way which insurance is, is distributed, with the exception of embedded insurance, which is a top topic. No, I agree. I mean, I'd argue affinity insurance goes back a little bit longer, but there's much more of a breadth of how embedded has been used. I mean, it's also becoming very, very popular if you go out into places like Asia where you've got a population that's rapidly got more economic buying power. They sort of start off in life insurance or life insurance, and then they sort of move into other areas. And But I, you're talking about phrases, and you know, a great phrase of mine is what I came across is, 
is don't mistake clear view for a short distance. You know, often we can see these things coming. And I describe embedded insurance like this, but it still takes quite a long time to get there because I mean, fundamentally the problem, the big problem when we talk about why things haven't quite developed as much as they have in the last 10 years is that the very few people, as you know, want to buy insurance. The biggest driver of innovation is, is regulation. When you say you have to do something, and then you do it. And so the beauty about embedded is you can e- either... And I was talking to Jamie Crystal from MIC about this, who we've got on the podcast coming soon. You, you can either have people opt in or opt out. And there's a sneaky way of doing it, is you, and it's buried somewhere in your purchase, and then you've got to go and check, check the box to opt out. There's a sort of slightly more, I guess, moral way to do it is you, you check in. But but people at that point are buying something, spending money, I think, well, actually, you know, for a couple of dollars, a couple of pounds more, I probably want to protect it. That, to me, is a, is a great way of actually aligning insurance more with what people actually need. But we've all had experience of insurers not paying out when they thought they might pay out. And uh, we came across one of those recently, didn't we? Yeah, tell us, you picked this up. I mean, we run run the newsletter. Go on, what what Allianz been up to now? We've got to give Henry Gale the credit for picking it up because he's doing his research. But this story is where Exeter University down in the uh, southwest of England, or Exeter is the southwest of England, we're about to go and build some uh, some new housing or some new accommodation blocks, and a thousand kilogram bomb from the Second World War was discovered in a field still live, uh, and so the bomb disposal team blew it up, uh, and then their insurer Allianz said that they the, the university was not covered for damage to their accommodation blocks because uh, there's a war exclusion in their policy, and it went to court, and the lawyers decided that even though it's something like seventy two years since this bomb had landed they were going to be excluded for a war exclusion so uh it just shows that as much as we love insurance sometimes it's surprising where things don't pay out when you might have thought they were going to pay out i think it's completely i mean wow it doesn't seem to make any sense to me that one i've got to experience this going on just now i won't talk about it but the thing that suddenly grates on me is and i know there's always yeah, this is legal cases where you've got precedent and things, but sometimes you just think, you know what, it would have been better to pay that rather than have us talking about a big insurance company not paying or you know, some of the other companies we know about that haven't paid out. You just think at some point, just pay out and get it done and, and actually prove, you know, like the sort of history of lawyers of paying out after the uh, the San Francisco earthquake when they, even though technically they didn't have to pay out for the claims because there's a difference between how people are insured for earthquake versus fire. The kind of view that time has taken, well, you know, lawyers are going to stand by its commitment and uh, and they paid out. And sometimes I think, you know, short-sighted if for your insurance company and you're not paying out on something because it does, it does have repercussions. Will you ring your bell? You, I'm, you, I'm going to ring my bell. I'm getting too grumpy. <laughs> you, you, you earned that. Uh, and you've given me an excuse to be grumpy too. Uh, this is not grumpy, but it's an observation. and It's an area where I think insurers could do so much better. Uh, one of the other themes to emerge this year, and this came from our increasing engagement with the risk management community, was how much data there is in the hands of risk managers that is not used by insurers in any way to manage, monitor, and price uh, insurance. And that's increasingly a frustration for the risk managers who are acutely aware of how much better an understanding of their assets and risks they have than the insurance market. And they're getting a bit fed up of sharing that data, as they're often asked to do, via their brokers, and it not being used. And, And you can see that we're in the middle of a sort of hiatus now where there's a lot more data 
than there was before, in standard called the data deluge. And some of that data is going to be very useful, but we don't yet know what. And even where we do know, we do have a feeling that that data is useful. We haven't got to the point where we trust it or can quantitatively put a number on how it affects pricing. So I think that's an area that we'll have a lot of time and effort spent on it, increasing the range of data that we trust and can adopt in how we assess risk. It's still still a barrier to getting a lot better. And I mean, in that context, you've got people like Hyper Exponential, HX, you know, who are building the models of the future on the basis that there is a lot that you'll be able to use those forms of data in the rating engines of the future. I mean, also what's happening is, and this is sort of what blockchain sort of should have solved, maybe it still will solve, the data is stays in one place. So if you've got a large corporation that knows what its properties are made of, where are they, it wants to get that data updated all the time. It doesn't want to package those up in a spreadsheet and probably mail it off to some broker. And then you know, that's a version that was probably by the time it gets placed six months out of date. And they don't know what's happened to it. So what some of these organizations are doing now is saying, I'll give you my data, but I still owe my data. You can access it with my permission. And then tell me what you want to do with it and figure it out. I mean, there's more opportunity there. There's also, I think the challenge for the insurance industry is it's just not, it hasn't found a way to underwrite some of these really big risks, particularly as you move to transitioning risk. I was on the panel of risk managers at the, it was actually the onshore energy forum, but they sneaked in a few offshore people. And Hannah Arbo, who's from a Danish investment fund, has $100 billion of wind farms and other renewables to insure. And just can't get the capacity or the appetite to go and insure it. And so then that's not going to go away. I mean, that so that's a big threat and opportunity for the insurance industry is how to basically at real scale figure out solutions. I mean, the trouble with these things, once they have a loss, they're very, very expensive. So that's big uncertainty in there. And ultimately, I think these companies are going to have to have very high retentions. But yeah, I think no one to grumble. Let's turn it, just so we avoid another bell, we'll turn it into an opportunity for the insurance industry rather than the grumble about what is not done yet. Is that, does Parametric have a role there? I I think this is a year in which Parametric has moved, at least perceptually, away from being entirely about cat and extreme weather and so on. You can see more and more circumstances where it's being used in circumstances where there is no capacity available, but you can get some level of protection if you define the limits right, you define the perils right, and you can find triggers. So it's not indemnity insurance but it's something where you wouldn't otherwise be able to get any form of protection and i think that parametric really has a role there and you can see there's been a lot of protections put together this year on that basis by smart brokers who know how to make parametric work better you've been reading our non-damage business interruption report you know i think (laughs) the problem with the insurance industry it does need to name things slightly uh, less complicated in the more client-facing way. But, but uh, yeah, the essence of that, of course, is if you get beyond pure damage from you know, a hurricane blowing your buildings away and actually the fact that you can have disruption to your, your business, even if you're not physically damaged, and then completely outside of catastrophic risk. Cause, yeah, that, that is – I was surprised. So you know, we released that a couple of two or three weeks – no, no, actually, no, where are we now? We released that about a week ago, another – one that Henry Gale wrote. Poor Henry and Ali were a bit insulted because I suggested to them we need to start writing our reports in the in the style that a Daily Mail reader could understand. But it does mean we've made the sentences shorter and taken out complicated words. 
And I'm not quite sure if that's entirely the reason why they seem to be flying off the digital shelves. But certainly, yeah, it's been been really interesting to see all the people that have been reading that NDBI report and uh, and learning about the 30 or so companies that we know that are active in that space. Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely getting better. Well, I'll put it this way. I've learned pretty much all I I know about NDBI from that report. And we are we are becoming an increasingly useful source of information on these new products, how they work, and sort of, I don't know, what we'd call a beginner's guide. I think they work very well. So I'm working on digital TPAs and smart follow. What's in your locker for Q1 2024? Yeah, so we're talking about risk managers. We've got our next risk manager event coming up on the 5th of March, thanks to Susie. Who was uh, who knows that space quite well now runs our event. So we've already got a full roster of speakers. I mean, the great thing about doing these risk manager events is you can find all sorts of fascinating topics and actually get people that are outside of insurance. So looking forward to that one again. And then, as you mentioned, we've got half a day in New York, thanks to Nigel Walsh, back in the Google offices again. Robin, I hope you're going to have some more robust trousers this time because uh we can't have you to, I mean, to sort of borrow from oscar wilde to rip your trousers once is uh is unfortunate but to rip it twice might look like carelessness but are you going to be bomb proof for this one if that's the right word i promise uh whole new wardrobe not least because it's the middle of winter so yeah i, I promise you a, a more robust appearance from my trousers this time around and my pants as our friends would like to say Good. Well, actually, you know, if you, you can keep your clothes on, then we'll uh, invite you to the, one of the up-and-coming face-to-face uh, news discussions. I mentioned briefly before, the episode 277, we, we did a, a sort of check-in on the news item. That was great fun. Definitely going to do more of those because it's a bit more live and you've got to keep on your toes for those ones. And we know people are always keen to talk about what they're doing in news, but actually it's actually really interesting if you ask people from different companies, particularly founders, you, you mentioned a few mentioned a few already, sort of Richard Harley at Saitora or Amrit Santhrasan at Hyper Exponential, just to get them in a room and ask them what they think about what else is happening in industries. It's a, it's a great topic. Plus, of course, we should invite some insurers along as well to that. Oh, and celebrate some success. I mean, if you, I still think the prevailing narrative of insurtech is reasonably gloomy, but there's money out there for the right founders. And you've named a few. Sorry. You've got a bell for that. Okay, don't get that help, but I want to pull you back. But before you, just back on your American, thinking about this, your comment about America, given the, the rise in uh, popularity of English wines, particularly, well, how would you describe them, the champagne-style wines? Uh, how, are we, how are we doing, how's the UK doing in, in terms of the US on the on sort of wine comparison front? It's still quite a long way behind, I suspect, in total, but relatively speaking, probably improving. No, I'm I'm a buyer of... English, particularly English sparkling wine, and there's some reasonable Pinot and other white varieties too. But we've still got to the point where the price point is unacceptable, I'm afraid. Um, it's pretty good stuff, but we don't produce enough and we can sell most of it. And the, the restaurants are very supportive of the indigenous industry. So there's a lot of demand, not a big enough supply. So I'm afraid I remain annoyingly a buyer of a lot of American wine and Italian wine and, and then... French high-end. Let me to quickly tell you, my Christmas has already started, and perhaps the reason for me being in such ebullient form. A friend of mine is an alcoholic, and, and he asked me whether I would come around and review his wine collection and take the whole thing off his hands so that he, now that he stopped drinking, he didn't have the temptation. And it's a pretty good wine collection, but much of it was at the end of its natural shelf life. So not one um, to turn down an opportunity. I, I made him an offer which 
he accepted. I've now got them all, and and I'm I'm doing uh, what the guides would books would have me do, which is start drinking them. So on the first of December, my Christmas started. I'm about a third of the way through my Christmas collection. I'm saving the very best until the week of festivities. But the ones that really were looking like they were they needed drinking up have, have already been drunk up. And and if if the others are better than that then the Merton's household would be a good place to be in the next few weeks. Very noble. Well, we might even be able to sneak some into one of our events for some special guests. Actually, this is going out on Christmas Eve. It's probably too late for a Christmas present. And I, and I don't know, given you're a, uh, is it winophile or vinophile? But Enophile, yeah. Right. yeah even, given that you're an enophile, I'm not quite sure what your view is on this. But one of the things I found quite helpful is one of those wine aerators where you pour the wine into a thing that creates bubbles and sort of, accelerates the uh, oxidization process. Do you, do you approve of that, or is that sort of considered to be a... No, no, it's good. I think you're onto something there. But just to be a right wine snob about all this, old wines, you don't do that too because they don't need aerating. Young wines, you have to do that too because it gets a bit of air through them. I don't know why I'm talking about wine so much, but you know you know, it is my first love. Actually, my wife, was my second love. Special shout-out to one advent who sent me around a magnum 2015 South African Syrah. I have to say, so nearly got drunk this weekend. I was bringing the corkscrew out, and my wife said, "No, that was a Christmas present. You'd jolly well wait till after Christmas." So, thank you, One Advent, and 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 can I, I high, highly recommend any one of our members to? I mean, feel free, send around a magnum. You know, we'll do what we can. Well, first of all, yes, thank you very much to uh, to Tim and Jordan and Sophie. Great to launch Tim on the podcast this year. I see he's gone off and now making a career of doing podcasts. But uh, we talked about MGA, so they definitely deserve a shout out as one of the MGA platforms. And then I was also offered a Christmas gift by Send uh, by Andy Moss, the CEO, and and Sarah Sutton. But I was also I was offered the the chance to donate to a charity. So because I wasn't going to be at home over Christmas, I, I chose a charitable option. So I don't know if my charity ended up with a bottle of wine or they got a wine equivalent, but also very thank you very much to Send for the offer of, of a gift as well. Very much appreciated. And also great podcast, by the way, Andy. Thank you very much. Good. Well, look, I have to go. And I wish the grants a happy Christmas, or I wish the grants you know, a great few weeks. But time to take a bit of time off, and we can leave the cares of the InsurTech world behind us and, and enjoy ourselves. Yeah, well, just pace yourself, whether it's with those wines or everything else going on. And yeah, of course, they say in America, happy holidays or other areas of the world, happy Christmas. And this is, I mean, we've got a lot of enthusiastic listeners who listen to us on Sunday morning. I'm not quite sure whether when we're going out Christmas Eve, they're going to be listening to us on Christmas Eve. But anyway, if you catch us up, hope you all had a great Christmas. And we'll be looking forward to seeing you all, many of us back face-to-face in London, which I've got to say is rather nice being back properly face-to-face rather than being cooped up on video calls for the duration of my life anyway robin i think we should let you get back to your one i can tell you're getting a bit twitchy now it's uh it's that time of the day when it's definitely time to open open a bottle five o'clock don't tell everybody <laughs> good i think we're done that was all right wasn't it edited highlights will be very good Well, I think that's enough from us. Thank you very much to everyone for your support this year. I had some fantastic downloads, some wonderful members, uh, lots of really great events and lots of great content. So lots to look forward to next year. Join us again early in January for the next episode. And we've got some quite exciting things coming out 
in the podcast next year. Don't miss those. And of course, if you're wondering how you can join us to share your news of the world, whether in writing, audio, video, or on stage, then check us out, www.instec.co. Matthew Grant or Robin Mertens on LinkedIn or any of us, hello, at instec.co. That's it. We're done.